0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. The
1: island of Cyprus, Madame, world famous for beauty and long tragic history, being conquered many times, conquered by Phoenicians, Assyrians, Persians, Macedonians, also conquered by Greeks, Romans, Byzantines, Turks purchased from turkey by your esteemed self the british empire all cyprus most fond of the british i'm an american A fond of americans also we Cypriots are fond of everybody shall we go through the castle now
2: no i've changed my mind
1: then maybe the tower of othello at the harbor of famagusta it's included in the tour all right
3: Good morning, London. It's Thursday, September 25th, 2014. I'm Bob Mett. And I'm Robert Vaughan. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. It's not right wing. It's just right. Into colour, colour into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be a- And welcome to our show today, where our topic of the hour will be the ISIS crisis that we've been hearing about so much. Today we will attempt to do our best to connect the dots between history and the current events as they're unfolding along the Fertile Crescent. And we have, uh, indeed, a very valued guest joining us today, Salim Mansour, who last joined us in studio only a few months ago in May, with regard to the local screening of the Honour Diaries, along with Rahil Raza. Welcome to the station again, Salim.
2: Thank you so much.
3: And, uh, you know, um, several weeks ago, you wrote to me to point out that a lot has been happening in the world since we last got together and suggested that we should get together to have a discussion to put some historic perspective on the events that have unfolded there. And uh, even though we scheduled this meeting several weeks ago, our timing seems not to have possibly been better, given the the front page headlines news these days. I mean, that's ISIS is right there with a with a CR in front of it, crisis. And... Uh, you suggested in your correspondence that Syria and Iraq may be actually remapped in the near future. So I guess the first question I find myself a bit compelled to ask is, do you consider ISIS, the so-called Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, in any sense to be a legitimate political force, if not authority, in those two countries as we know them today? Uh,
2: well that's a very um, broad question political legitimacy no it is not political legitimacy but who grants the legitimacy to anything in in some sense uh, legitimacy is granted by I say history does by history and by power and by establishing de facto reality on the ground and so the de facto reality on the ground that is being created right in front of our eyes is um, in some ways the further fragmentation of the Middle East or the Middle East that was constructed a 100 years ago. And I think that's the point I was pointing out to you, that, it, that there is a history here. The irony cannot is inescapable. This summer was the 100th anniversary of... The Great War. We don't call it the Great War anymore. We call it World War I. The Great War began in the summer of 1914. And uh, what is being played out right now in the Middle East, that is in the Fertile Crescent in Syria and Iraq and Lebanon and the Levant, that is the area between Eastern Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf, was the scene of war 100 years ago. And unless we understand that and unless we understand you know, the issues that were involved then and how it is being played out now, I think the dots cannot be connected.
4: You know, the the history of the Fertile Crescent, as you call it, dates back many thousands of years. And it is the cradle. It is the birthplace of uh, the entire civilization of the world dating back to the, the city of Ur, which is now underwater. That's how old the history of this particular place goes does one have to understand the history all the way back to that time to be able to form a cogent opinion about what is happening today with isis do you have to be a historian or do you have to be a philosopher you might not be neither but then the picture will be
2: incomplete you don't have to go back 10,000 years, we're not talking about 10,000 years, you know, and the bone is completely dried out and mixed up with the sand. <laughs> but we're talking about living memories, and the living memories of history is, you know, two, three generation, four generations. Uh, right here in Canada, the history has been played out, you know, we are barely 150 years old. And we have played out the history in our referendums, in our constant debate, in our constitution. You know, in the moment any of these things are opened up, we fall back on that living memory of three, four generations. In the case of the Middle East, there's that broader history, which, I mean, you refer to Ur, that's the birthplace of Abraham. And the people of the Middle East, you know, that there's a main denomination of the people who identify themselves as who they are whatever their ethnicity is in terms of the two dominant universal religion, Christianity and Islam, you know. And then the, the, they are the progeny of Abraham Ur, so Judaism. And there is the intersection there. So that's part of history too. Yes. And it is not that ancient because that's being played out right now.
4: Well, that's what I'm trying to get at. And I don't want to belabor the point of, of the length of time that one has to understand in historical context to to talk about the issue of today, but if you look at, for example, the recent referendum to uh, for Scotland to uh, leave the Union, um, it's playing on a nationalism that is hundreds, several hundreds of years old, past living memory, but it's being brought up and used today to, to foment dissent in that part of uh, the U.K., Surely the same argument can be held about the Middle East. You have people saying that, oh, Israel has a, a right to this land because of King David. You go back 1,000 years or more, 2,000, 3,000 years, and they're bringing up these sentiments that are so old, as you say, the bone has turned to <laughs> dust. Why bring up such ancient history to, to talk about uh, ISIS today?
2: Well, let's talk about ISIS, but I just want to again take a minute or two of the point, uh, t- my time to deal with what you said. You know, I mean, you in Scotland's referendum, you're absolutely right. You know, 307 uh, um, year old union was at play only a week ago. Uh, well, Scottish identity is older than 307 years of union, mm-hmm. you know, and they were drawing upon that identity. So here the variable is identity, mm-hmm. and they were going back to Bruce of Scotland. And the Brave Hearts, and the poetry of Robert Burns, and so on. You know, people's identity is, in a sense, packaged by their memories and how much of it is kept alive. The Scots have kept alive that memory, at least those who wanted to have a separate existence as a state. So in the case of the Middle East, it is very much alive. You know, it is not dead, and therefore, you know, history has not become dried bones. But coming to ISIS and coming to our time, the point is the last 100 years or the last 50 years. Middle East, before the World War I, was a different Middle East in the sense all of this land, which is we are at play right now, as I said, between Eastern Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf, was part of the Ottoman Empire. So when you talk about legitimate, as, as Bob said, began his remarks with, what is legitimate? That is the power to be to which people give obedience. You know, Bob, I don't want to get into too much philosophy, mm-hmm. but the greatest and the most profound political question Going all the way back to Socrates is a very simple question. Why do people obey? You can obey to, like Flintstone, to the guy who carries the biggest club, or you can obey out of your own internal agreement. Right with the uh, with the with the construction of power. So and legitimacy. in your own self
3: interest, own self interest. Sure.
2: But there is an appeal to some mm-hmm. other force. You know, there's a vision. We in United States or in in Canada, we talk about constitutional. The, 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 we we obey because this is what the constitution. Well, constitution is man-made, but there is another constitution which is not man-made, which is given the sense of that it is a higher power, the Ten Commandments of, Abraham, of Moses, and you obey that. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit murder, etc., etc. So this issue of obedience, that is the structure by which people live their life, their daily life, is something that people have to give thought to. You know, we, we obey Ottawa, we obey Washington, whoever it is. So in the Middle East, for hundreds of years, till the First World War, was that and that is where we're coming to immediate history is the ottoman empire and ottoman empire was there the Tsarist empire was there the austro-hungarian empire was there there was five empires that went to war the british and the french at the end of the war when the dust settled there was only the british and the french empire standing all the um, empires had crumbled to death they were european but the one that was non-european was the ottoman empire and the lands of the ottoman empire was now in the hands and in the control of the victorious powers, Britain and France. So at the end of World War I in 1918, and the settlement of 1918, which was the Treaty of Paris, the Paris Conference 1919, there the settlement, there was European settlement and there was Middle Eastern settlement. There the settlement was the carving of the map. So the maps that you see, which by which we have for the last 10 decades being familiar with the Middle East, we're not talking 10,000 years history, we're talking about 10 decades of history, is the maps that were drawn in Paris, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, you know, the Gulf states, uh, and so on. That is now under collapse. That's what I meant. Why is under collapse? Because all of these states could not establish the legitimacy.
4: That's what I was just about to ask you, is why should an Arab, for an example, or a Jordanian or a Syrian or an Iraqi, obey the structure that has been imposed on upon them by uh, Europeans in Paris?
2: Exactly. I mean, look, uh, the imposition, whether it was in the Middle East, and I'll just take a diversion, or the imp- imposition or construction after World War Two, Japan's constitution was imposed. Japan is the only country in the 196 or 200-odd countries in the UN that has a real experience of what is a nuclear war, right? Everybody else can speculate about it, Japan, without getting into the rights and wrong. And so not only the nuclear weapons and the ashes that was imposed upon Japan, constitution was imposed upon Japan. And after the war, the Japanese people obeyed. They accepted the new constitution. They went along with the construction of it. The American forces are still there. The differences, and I come to Bob, is the Japanese government and the state that came into being after forty-five delivered something to the people. That is a good life.
4: There's also another difference that I, I've always identified with Japan is that they had a great sense of shame over what they did in the Second World War. They knew that they were the aggressors. They were following a military blindly and the emperor as well. And when they were defeated, they had this great sense of honor and in defeat, a great sense of shame. But I don't think that that same sense of shame is going to be felt in the Middle East.
2: You're you're right. You're right. And as we're scratching it, this is so fascinating. Uh, The Japanese emperor was saved by the Americans. Emperor Hirohito was not blamed. He was not declared a war criminal. And so the reverence for the emperor that the Japanese people had when they were smashed and defeated, they all celebrated when they went to war. But now when they were smashed and defeated, they turned towards their emperor and the emperor accepted the imposed regime. And therefore, the legitimacy of the regime with the acceptance of the emperor of the new regime, plus what happened so Japan was able to rebuild itself, and the people recognize. now this shame is part of the history. Guilt is part of the history, but the subsequent pride is part of the history. I keep telling my yeah, students good, yeah. that the Japanese lost in 45, and they won by 75. And my students look at me, why? And I said, you know, your parents and you guys, I walk in the Springett parking lot, you are all driving Japanese car.
3: <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know? You know. South Korean. Yes.
2: <laughs> so in the case of the Middle East, the structures of the states that were created did not deliver. If they had delivered development, if they had developed, de- delivered a sense of pride to these people and an achievement, then the people would have rallied around it. I give you another counterpoint, India. Yesterday, India, which came out of the British Empire, Modern India is a product of the British Empire. So, see, we are going around history. This is our history of the last 100 years. India came out of that shambles or, or the legacy. Yesterday, the Indian scientists put, there's the fourth country in the world, put a, a satellite, satellite on orbit around mm-hmm. Mars. the Mars. Think of the tremendous pride, how much pride there is, oh, you know. A- that they absolutely. They could, could, could do that, you know, the science. But in the case of the Middle East, they did not. They fail. That's the big question, why they fail.
3: Now, what a a great intro to our first break, because I think that sets a different uh, tone to everything. Um, I know that you are aware of Bill Warner. You don't particularly agree with everything he says. But he has been interviewed by us on this show, and he has his own views of how um, Islam in history has manifested itself over the European landscape in North Africa and we're going to listen for the next uh, three four minutes to hear his uh, summary of that historical progress and how it uh, happened i I'd be interested in if there's any key points he made that you would either agree with or disagree with and we'll take that break now and we'll be right back after this
0: alright now to understand how that Islamic world came about we're going to have to go about and see how Islam entered our world. Now, to do that, Islam entered the world of the Byzantine Empire. We know that in the Sirah, Muhammad's life, his last days were spent killing Christians and subjugating them. After he died, that process continued. So, let's describe the world that Islam invaded. Now we're told that the Roman Empire collapsed when the German barbarians invaded Rome. You all heard that story? Well that's false. That is not true, it is wrong. What happened was, after the German barbarian tribes invaded Rome, they set up their own version of the Roman Empire. They retained classical culture. They spoke Roman. They hired Roman philosophers and Roman attorneys to teach their children and to run their schools. They came into the Roman Empire not to destroy the empire but just to get the goods for themselves. The important point is this. There was still a classical empire. It's not collapsed. Then after the fall of Rome, the Byzantines gradually exerted their political influence till now this was the new form of the Roman Empire. This is the Byzantine Empire and it is about to be invaded. This is the classical world that Islam invaded. Notice that the classical world is still up and running. Here we see in 25 years three stages of development of the spread of Islam. This is 25 years work. How is it that the Arabs were able to do to the Byzantine Empire what the Persians could not do in Iran. (laughs) The Greeks and the Persians had been having wars since forever. All right, Alexander the Great, he defeated the Persians. The Persians kept hammering on the Romans and then the Byzantines, and 25 years before Islam invaded there was one massive last series of battles that left Persia weak and the Byzantine Empire very weak. Then comes along the Black Plague, one person in three dies, so the Byzantine Empire, when Islam invaded, had been weakened by a long war with Persia and the loss of a third of its population. The economy had collapsed by two-thirds. You think the Obama economy is bad? Try two-thirds. So we had an empire that was weak, invaded by people with a mission. This empire is beginning to build here, came from people who could be described as the apostles of Muhammad. Why is it important to know that? They knew Muhammad. They held his hand. They, <clears throat> one of them, Ali, married his daughter. Abu Bakr was his father-in-law. These people are not just brothers in the religious sense, they're brothers in the family sense. And what did they do? Did they go out preaching in the Quran? No they didn't. They picked up their swords, got on their camels and horses and went out whacking Christians. And Persians, here you see it. This is the fruit on the tree. Massive destruction. Now, notice something else that's happened here. Egypt is the breadbasket of the Mediterranean, Syria, the heart of the intellectual world of the classical empire. In 25 years, the classical civilization lost its ability to feed itself and lost its biggest brain trust. 750 AD, Spain is already Muslim. This is rapid-fire conquest. This is going to become very important because this was not, this happened as it were in the life of a nation overnight. This brutal assault is the key as to why we fear Islam.
3: Those were the comments of uh, Bill Warner. And uh, it just seemed to be, to be a historical outline, but it seemed to upset you a bit, Salim. Uh, did you disagree with pretty well everything <laughs> the guy just said?
2: Well, he's a joker. If uh, the most, he's a joker. He's the most silly man. Look, I mean, I don't have the time. You don't have the time to get into you, But just Okay, very quickly, the he's talking about the Greeks and the Persian, and then he uses the word Islam. Islam is not an ethnicity. Islam is not, you know, people. Islam is an idea, a religion. Christianity mm-hmm. is an idea, a religion. Judaism is an idea, and religion. So Greeks had a religion. Greeks had a culture. So he's right. talking about people. He's talking about people, Persian. Persian was Zoroastrian. So the Zoroastrians were at war with the pagan Greeks or Greeks who worshipped Zeus. Okay. okay. And then he introduces Islam. Islam is people. The world of Islam today, like the world of Christendom, is made up of vast diversity of ethnicity. That's why there's two, you know, world religion. There are other world religions, but there's two, which is Christianity and Islam. What has a person from Kalahari Desert who is a Christian got to do with Jesus or somebody from Philippine or somebody of your background to do with Jesus who was a Palestinian, a Jewish rabbi? So uh, what does an Indonesian... Or uh, people from the island of Sumatra got to do with Muhammad or Islam. They're a complete different ethnicity. So he's what,
4: mixing identities. He's is not he? only
2: mixing. He has mixing history. He has no sense of history. This guy has complete buffoon. What ha, what 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 it is? It's it's again, you know, in, in the first century A.D. or the first century B.C. hundred years. If you want to get into history, the Romans well, as they, they <laughs> uh, the Romans as they expanded, they destroyed Judea and Samaria. There was a kingdom of Judea and Samaria. There was vicious wars. And then, ultimately, there was a Holocaust. The temple was destroyed. The Bar Khotba revolt. And finally, Judea and Samaria, I mean, I'm really compressing, was named Palestine. The people of Judea and Samaria were Jews, were Semitic people. And so the Romans destroyed them. It is in, the, in that large history of the destruction of, of the Jews, because the Jews resisted take a, the taking over of their history, their land, their religion by these pagans that the Jews fought, they were defeated, they were crushed, they were dispersed. It is within that history that Jesus was born. And Jerusalem was at a center of the Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. And the mission of Jesus was a personal ethics. The Sermon on the Mount is a personal ethics. Okay, The case of Muhammad is like the case of Moses and David. They were not, Muhammad was born at Outside any civilized empire, there were two empires. There was the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire. These were the two civilized... Muhammad is born in the desert in Arabia. And his message and his career, that is his life, is one of bringing the message that was the same message as the Jews. The creedal statement of Islam, that is a religion, not ethnicity, is there is one God. The creedal statement of the Jews, that is the Shema, is your Lord God is one. The story of Paul is that he, the Jew, who takes the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. Remember that? And he does away with the Jewish law, circumcision, halakha, to convert the pagans. In the case of Muhammad, he takes the same message that is the Jewish message. The Quran is a Jewish book. It's the story of the Jews. He takes that message to the pagan Arabs and he converts them to the worship of one God. What happens is something similar to what's happening. I've written a book about this, multiculturalism. Who is blowing up the Americans and the British and the Canadians? Did the immigrants come and impose a multiculturalism law? But in in, in, in 40 years, the sinews of a liberal democracy is now corrupt. All right? So the sinews of Greek and Persian empires in their wars were completely destroyed. And so these desert Arabs who emerged from there, they prevailed. As you know, in politics as well as in physics, no vacuum remains unfilled. Yeah. So the Roman Empire fell. It was not that the Arabs could have defeated them if the Roman Empire had been strong.
4: But there can be no greater incentive to die or to kill than your religion.
2: Precisely. You guys have understood one thing, at least I hope you did in our conversation, that there was a world of theocrats, and theocrats ran the world. Politics was theocracy. Christianity was a theocracy. The Jewish power, Judah and Israel, when before the Romans destroyed it, was theocracy. Because politics was sacred, the vision. I talked about constitutional order. It came from the holy books. All right. It takes a great historical struggle with the coming of the new sciences—Galileo, Newton, Copernicus, Kepler—and all of that, and the great exploration that basically challenges the understanding of the theocrats who rule rule Europe—the theocrats, the Vatican—and so that the new sciences smash the structure the cosmological understanding of the theocrats but this was not an overnight thing in two years time you're going to mark the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther putting the 95 thesis on the church in Wittenberg right I hope you will mark it if I'm alive I hope I'll come (laughs) back to your thing so from 1515 that's that's the official date but it began even before that there was John Wycliffe there was John Huss the, 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 the Protestant struggle had begun. What was the Protestant struggle? That the Vatican cannot determine what is Christianity because their basic thesis had collapsed. And that struggle that begins from about 1500 carries on into the 19th century.
4: Well, you know, you're bringing up an issue that I think has been talked about just only slightly with regard to ISIS. And that is the use of the word Islam, Islam. In its name, whether it's ISIL, ISIS, IS, or now Daesh, they—that is the Arabic word for, them, for yeah. them. Yeah, well, they have the word Islam yeah. in their title, Islamic State. Absolutely. Now, surely, to God, to pardon the pun, um, their religion has a, a large part to play in their fervor to kill and to take over Syria and Iraq. Absolutely. And that's what, What
2: again, if you want to simplify, and Bill Warner is a buffoon. Let me say it. You can carry the message to him that Salim <laughs> called him a buffoon. This is the struggle we are having in the 21st century. This is the theocrat. The Islamic theocrat, the Muslim theocrat want to impose their theocracy on me. I am a Muslim who's fighting against theocracy. That in this world of ours, religion has to be personal. See, back again to the question of obedience. For them, the obedience is the way they understand the Quran and they're going to decapitate anybody who questioned them. And so they're coming, their authority is the Quran. Well, look, I was in... Walking through the Louvre this summer with my daughter, I wanted to show her Mona Lisa. And I was taking picture of all the paintings from the 16th and 15th and 17th century of Europeans holding the decapitated heads of people they had decapitated. And Paris was the capital of decapitation, the guillotine. And this is not a argument I'm making for polemical reason. That's why I said, put it in historical context. The the, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire created a void. The states that were created by the, uh, by the British and the French didn't fill that void. It only nominally filled it. Okay? Because the question remained, where is the authority? And that, that is what is being played out. And unless ISIS is crushed, just as the Japanese were crushed, do the West has the power to do that and the, and, 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 and the sense of their own identity? But in 1945, they did. Unless this is crushed and destroyed, those Muslims who want to engage in the modern world as modern Muslims are the first victim. The biggest struggle that is taking place in the world of Islam whether it is Indonesia, and so the, he's got it wrong. The ethnicity, Indonesia, Pakistan, Nigeria, the Boko Haram, Somalia, you, you're reading about in the press, and in the Middle East, is a question of authority. That means it's a question of philosophical basis of power.
4: You know, we're going to take a break in a moment, and, and I think the, the main burning question I have for you in the last half of this uh, show is, what is our obligation to impose uh, or to depose ISIS and to get involved in this thing. But we'll, we'll leave that for the next half of the show. Sure. Just going to take a
3: break now for a smile. I guess we could use one, and we'll be back right after this.
5: The terrorism is bad, and I know a lot of these guys are, are evil, angry, desperate you know, whack jobs, many of them are, are in, 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 uh, in sex, religious sex, some of them are denied women their entire life, the ones that allow women, those women are, are abused, forced to cover themselves, women aren't allowed to talk. And I really think that's what's at the core of the terrorist's ability to do evil. Just from personal experience, <laughs> if you don't have a woman in your life keeping you down somehow, <laughs> You have no perspective. I, I mean, <laughs> picture the conversation. We are going to go and take over the world. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> we have people coming over. <laughs> They're our friends, we invited them. If you need to go somewhere, why don't you go to the store and get some ice cream for dessert? Because we're going to go and take over the world. No. Okay. I, hello, I, I cannot go to take over the world. No, I I'm not afraid of that, my friend. I can explain now. I must go get Chunky Monkey now. Okay, assalam. Bye bye. Hmm.
1: So you'll hold down the Turkish desert army? Yes with a thousand Arabs, A thousand Arabs means a thousand knives delivered anywhere, day or night. It means a thousand camels. That means a thousand packs of high-explosive and a thousand crack rifles. We can cross Arabia while Johnny Turk is still turning round. I'll smash his railways. And while he's mending them, I'll smash them somewhere else. In 13 weeks, I can have Arabia in chaos. You are going back then yes of course i'm going back Hmm. well if we can see it so can the turk if he finds he's using four divisions to fend off a handful of bandits he'll withdraw he daren't withdraw arabia's part of his empire if he gets out now he knows he'll never get back again i wonder who will no one will arabia's for the arabs now that's what i've told them anyway that's what they think That's why they're fighting. Oh, surely. They've only one suspicion. We'll let them drive the Turks out and then move in ourselves. I've told them that that's false, that we've no ambitions in Arabia. Have we? I'm not a politician, thank God. Have we any ambition in Arabia, Dryden? Difficult question, sir. I want to know, sir, if I can tell them in your name that we've no ambitions in Arabia. Certainly.
4: Now, of course, that was from the great movie Lawrence of Arabia. And it's really um, apropos that here they are asking the question, the British uh, reassuring the Arabs that they have no ambitions in Arabia and, of course, they are lying through their teeth, Um, begs the question, what is is our ambition in the middle east today do we have an obligation to come in and intervene in isis do we have an obligation to uh because we set up that is we being the west set up these artificial borders to what were essentially nomadic tribes do we have an obligation to go in there and make this right
2: well it begs the further question what do we, that is the West, I assume you, yes. you're talking about, what what do the West today stand for? Is it simply utilitarian calculation, you know, of buying and selling and commerce and trade? If that's what it is, you know, then it goes back to the question of creating a situation where trade and commerce can flow without, uh, you know, obstruction uh, and, and leave everything else to whoever the people are to find out how they want to make their own life or is it that the West represents in that deeper philosophical sense uh historical sense uh the modern world the modernity that we talk about that is liberal democracy human rights you know and everything else modern science you know uh rule of law and so on and so forth and if that's what the west represents then then there's further question is it then west's responsibility to help the others who want to have a similar you know or become part of that one civilization uh to help them or not you know so if it is that the west is concerned about its own identity and it is not all messed up with multiculturalism and political correctness what is the core identity of the west there was a core identity of the west despite world war 1 world war 2 you know when churchill fought he fought for freedom and roosevelt talked about freedom freedom as the label behind which lies the history of the West from Magna Carta to the making of Mm. the parliamentary system of government, and freedom, and so on. Then, I think West is obliged to help those people in the Muslim world uh, achieve
4: those ends for themselves. But It sounds as if you're saying that if we have a good grasp of what we are as a culture in the West, an identity, then we should go in there and and assist those people who are like-minded, who simply want to live in peace. But on the other hand, you're, you're, almost, you're implying that if we don't have a good grasp of who we are, we are losing our liberal democratic identity daily through our official multiculturalism and uh, philosophic shift. If we've lost our identity in that sense, then how can we go in and, in, and impose or instruct, or however one we use, uh, an identity that we aren't familiar with on another uh, society?
2: Yeah, we cannot. Because if if the teacher doesn't know what he's going to teach, then what what does he go in and talk to his students for? And then it's a free for all, and and that's that's the collapse. I mean, we began with the observation of a hundred years ago, the World War One. You know, the great Irish poet W. B. Yeats, William Butler Yeats. You know, he was sort of in the stand, watching the events and his world collapsing. And that's the great poem he wrote, The Second Coming. And the opening lines of The Second Coming is, you know, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is let loose upon the world. So when the center cannot hold, when people have no sense of where the authority comes from or what is legitimate authority, then it's free for all. That's what has happened, that's what's happening in the Middle East, that's what's happening in Africa, where the center holds. You see, the Chinese went through an immense revolution. It was a hundred years revolution. It began in the middle of the 19th century, the Taiping Rebellion, and it ended in somewhere in 1949 with the communists taking power and Mao sitting, walking into Beijing. And then subsequent to that, you know, the communist revolution, the cultural revolution and all, in total, over 150 million people were killed. Mao himself is responsible for 100 million people. Whether the West likes it or not, now China is a compact country and it's emergent as a power, right? India is another case in point. Whether the West did it by accident or by design is immaterial. Britain held India together for 200 years. The last 90 years as part of the British Empire, it was a crown jewel. When Britain handed power to India, that is to the generation of Mahatma Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru, they carried on the British institutions. India is today the world's largest democracy. It is a parliamentary system of government. It's constitutional authority. The first gov- uh, pr- uh, leader of India, the, the governor general of India, was the last viceroy of India, Lord Mountbatten. There was a continuity. The authority was holding. The center held. Look at India. The other parts of the world, the, the West Scramble, they were confused. They didn't have the time. If Britain had been in the Middle East, just for argument's sake, as an alternative history, as Britain was in India for 200 years, then Britain would have been ruling that part of the world, and a structure would have been put in place. And around that structure, there would have been investment. What does a structure putting in place mean? That people invest in it. Politics is also an investment. You know, you build a party, you invest in it, and you want to protect it. So, There would have been an investment. That did not happen. Because between 1919, the Treaty of Paris, and 1939, you count how many years is there? 20 years. And everything collapsed. And so the structures that was put in place were run by the local authoritarians. They were secular. Nasser was secular. Saddam Hussein was secular. The Syrian president, Hafez Assad's father, was secular. The only theocrats who took power were in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf state. And guess what? The Western powers helped the theocrats. The great struggle after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire is how will the Muslim world, in this case the Middle East, come into the modern world, whether it will reconcile itself to the modern world and therefore the understanding of Islam will be consistent with the political philosophy of the modern world democracy gender rights minority rights all of that that you and I take for granted in Canada but these have to be worked at it doesn't fall as the April shower from the sky right so that did not happen because the the secular powers were interested in holding on to the center whatever they created they had no legitimacy because they were not elected governments they couldn't trust to have an election because they would have been defeated because it was a tribal society. Mm. And on the other hand, the tribe that did have a center, the biggest one is Saudi Arabia, was fully protected by the British and the Americans. Till today, ISIS is the second coming of Saudi Arabia because the ISIS are the theocrats. Saudi Arabia is theocrats. The West is shaking. I'm using the words in a, metaphorical sense, with the, with the pictures of the two journalists who were decapitated, James Foley and Sotloff, and then the third one, David Hines. Yesterday, it was the Frenchman, you know. Well, in the same week that James Foley and Sotloff were beheaded, two. The Saudis beheaded over a dozen. Saudi Arabia is our ally, and we are going after these people.
4: It sounds as if we're a schizophrenic society here in the West.
2: We, we, we are a schizophrenic society. I mean, so, we, 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 Obama talks about uh, we are going to degrade ISIS, but with the same breath he says, ISIS is not Islam. I, as a Muslim, know the ISIS version is Islam. It is a mutated, bastardized version. As I said on Sunday in Toronto, we held a rally. There were five MPs and a minister who came down from Ottawa to our rally. We Muslims... Small in number, there was about between ninety and hundred people there. There were a lot of non-Muslim there, but the the main organizers were, were us, the Muslims facing tomorrow, and and his partners. And we held a rally, and the rally was to denounce ISIS. And I pointed out that the first man beheaded historically by ISIS and their precursor was the grandson of the prophet.
4: Now I know that you went through a lot of trouble with you Rahil, uh, Sohel. Uh, Organizing to get Muslims at the Steps of Queen's Park to protest the what you call the usurp- usurpation of the name Islam. No, but here we and were ISIS, and was, yet, is, and, and you had the participation of ministers of of the government. Yes, Mr. Harper sent um, oh, the minister for, for state of culture multiculturalism, right? And Tim um, O'Pal. Yes, and and you could you could only get. About a hundred people. When we have three hundred thousand marching in New York over over global warming, well, what's going on with uh, with Muslims in Canada if they won't go out and support you in this effort? Both with the
2: Muslim and with the non-Muslim, because the rally was called in support of the Christians and the minorities. We were not talking theology over there. There's a practical problem. People are being decimated, you know. And we were standing up as Muslims and calling out for a response to that. And there was a fair going on, and nobody from the fair that were around Queen's Park came and joined the rally. And you're absolutely right, you know. Where are the Canadian people coming up and joining? it? We broadcast this, others broadcast this. But about the Muslim. No apologetic. They should have been out there. This is a free country. But in a free country, there is fear because, the, because our politicians are going to the mosque. The mosque is theocracy. And the message from the mosque is to support Saudi Arabia, to support Iran. And even, you know, if they're not going to support ISIS, they're supporting the very people who have created ISIS or ISIS. Mm-hmm. So you have this whole confusion out there. The media was not there. Why wasn't the media there except for Sun? Because we're not story. We're not numbers. So that's another point. But I'm all I'm pointing out to you that our biggest ally in this battle, presumably, are the very people who are the incubator of the ideology, the poison, the toxin of... ISIS, and then we have in Western countries, in Canada, in United States, in Britain, in France, in Germany, in Holland, etc., etc., etc. Citizens born in that country. Now we are talking about Muslim born in that country. You know, who are carrying the toxin of ISIS, and we cannot talk about it because we, as multicultural society, must protect multiculturalism and be therefore politically correct, except for those people like me who's talking about it. Twisted
3: so... by our own petard, so to speak. That's right. Yes. Well, you know, uh, going to our final break before we wrap up the show. In some ways, the discussion of Islam and the terrorist threat really hasn't changed since 9/11. Our following audio excerpt has been taken from a discussion. Aired only weeks after 9 11, so very important to keep in mind this is in 2001 on Bill Maher's. Um, politically incorrect. And appearing with him as guests were four young, bright American Muslim students who were all engaged essentially in a debate that doesn't seem to have moved even one step forward in the intervening years. A lot of what they talk about is what we've just been talking about. So where do we go from here? What should the West do? We'll hear what Salim Mansour has to say on these questions when we return.
6: Okay, you're saying this is just rhetoric, but uh, Osama bin Laden in his uh, speech the other day that we all saw, said, I swear to God that America will not live in peace before all the army of infidels depart the land of Muhammad. Again, I think this comes from a certain frustration because... It for sounds years- like religion is a little bit a part of this. He he's it, trying it to is, make it, it, is, it that way. It is. passion you know for what? blood. He has a passion for killing people. And I don't know why I we're quoting either, him. You wouldn't I'm, go as far as millions? I don't millions? think I would go as far as millions of I read of today there is, there's a million kids in school in Pakistan and these... Because they're forced school. to be there. They don't want to yeah, be there. I, I don't they're taking this Again, you know, Bill, I, I, think, Bill I think the books. main thing is to understand where does Osama bin Laden's frustration comes from. And it comes from a certain frustration that for years, Muslims, Arabs have been trying to get the United States United States policymakers, to examine their own policy. Remember, the United States left right. Afghanistan in 89 and said, you know what, thanks, you know, we used you to help fight the Russians. We've won <laughs> 89, see you later. What about where was the United States policymakers talk about? Let's talk about where are talk, your talk, talk about your policymakers? Okay, but Bill, well, yeah, Bill, think bill, of it like bill, It's always us. You, you remind <laughs> me of the victim okay. mentality bill, that bill. was so prevalent. Is, bill, I'm you got a, a bill, public though.
4: affairs council. I
6: have a master's degree in international relations from Harvard. Okay. I know how to do this stuff. Let's have... Zahir knows how to do this stuff. They know how to do this stuff. Let's... You know What we're trying to do right now is move in and get our voices heard. Our voices have not been heard so far in terms of our government policy. We have things to say and they're unpopular. They're Mm -hmm. unpopular And we need the support of
5: America to take these messages back to our home countries. If as an Arab American I want to go back to my country and say, honestly, listen, democracy is a better way. I need to have the credibility of knowing that my country is going to go attack them after I say that.
6: Bill, you said that we were cowards. You got hammered for saying we were cowards because we just launched missiles and sit back. A real person, real men and women would go into these countries, embrace them and give them education and prosperity because there's too much ignorance there and that's the only only way to eradicate it. But it's not our obligation. And by the way... No, it is our obligation. If, Woodrow Wilson's Wilson's it, if we're upholding Woodrow Wilson's 14 but points, you, you, you it is guys, our obligation you guys have to defend very democracy. Little perspective on what it means to be the superpower during the course of history. Lots of nations have been the superpower. I'll give oh, you one like example. When Rome was the superpower, there was Wait no terrorism in Rome because if somebody acted up, they killed all them all and sold America? salt into the ground. The in we are amazingly tolerant as a superpower. Oh, yes, and do Other nations United who have ruled the world, world have done. done. Those the record stands, the Bill, Bill. The States. record stands on its own. We are the only nation that dropped the atomic bomb. We are the, we are the nation that imposed sanctions no, no, on no, Iraq. But, we but, dropped Bill, the, the atomic nation, but, Bill, bomb in a war listen. in which we were attacked first. Okay, no, but hey, hey, that's that's a good idea, though, because the United after States world... is involved at every level in the Middle East. Okay, you can't you can't take the United States foreign policy out of the the realities of the Middle East. But after World war, war II, States we see Bill. is not That we after World War II, we embraced Japan. We embraced Japan after World right. War II and it, it was great for us. That's what, we and need to do that now. We made Japan we to change their countries. archaic thinking. We made the emperor go on TV and say, no, you know Bill, what, I'm we not we God. S- we set up well, a disaster. We brought them education. I'd like we to brought them see supplies. something like that happen. The United happen. States is not doing that okay. for the Arab world. Let's be honest with the public. We no. to do it for no, themselves first. The United first. States. is funding is not interesting. I'll take a commercial. We'll be right
1: back.
3: Interesting, because part of that discussion was what we were talking about in the first quarter, and it almost sounded like those students were almost wishing that America would treat the East the way that they treated Japan. Almost, why don't they come over if they're going to fight there and fight a war? Why not impose a set of, of, of principles upon which good governance should be, um, you know, followed? Is that even plausible? that kind of an approach, the same, you know, as, as they did with Japan?
2: Um, I suppose it's not plausible in, in the time that we are living in. I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, put the dates here, mm-hmm. December 7, 1941, and Roosevelt the next day says, this is a day of infamy, and, 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 and the war is declared. And within four years, that war is brought to an end, and Japan is transformed. 2001, September 2001, and look at the response to that. I mean, Pearl Harbor was not the heartland of America that was bombed. New York was the heartland of America that was bombed. And we have been, you know, sort of griping about it, you know, trying to wonder what we should do and what it is. in this 60 years, America and Canada and the West— has become transformed by his own volition back to bill Warner he's talking about Roman it was not the not 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 the German Huns that did it to no. them. well, Rome was transformed. Look at it between Augustus Caesar and Julius Caesar and by the time you come to Nero and Caligula, if you if this guy was a serious guy who would read Edward Gibbon, Rome was a battered country. It has lost its vitality. Its sinews were dead. They were crazy emperors. So look at it between Roosevelt and Truman and Eisenhower, the president. What is America today? Obama. Look at, you know, with, in, in, in the case of Britain, look at it, you know, from Churchill to David Cameron. Look at it in, in Canada, from Mackenzie King and Louis Saint Laurent to a possibility of Justin Trudeau as, as a future prime minister. We have degraded ourselves. So when Mm -hmm. you ask me the question, is it plausible? I don't know, I don't think so. The world has changed. The world has changed in in many ways into a different dimension, that is the Western world. It has lost its identity. And how is it going to reform itself? I have no clue. One, I have argued the case that multiculturalism has to be revoked, revealed you know, yes. thrown into the dish can. And we have to re-educate ourselves that we are a liberal democracy and what that means.
4: So before we go over to Syria and Iraq and Iran and Saudi Arabia and tell them how they should live in peace, we should get our own house in order is what you're saying. Well,
2: you know, in, in life, it is so not so neatly packaged that, you know, you can do this and then you do that, both things are happening simultaneously. Sure. So we have to do both things simultaneously. We have to get, get ourselves serious about who we are. We have to deal with that because that threat cannot remain contained there. When, when Europe was going through reformation and counter-reformation over three centuries, there were other civilizations, but Europe was not infecting them. There was a Chinese civilization, Indian civilization, the Middle East, so on, so. It was Europe, what was happening inside Europe was all European business. Today, we are living in a globalized world. You know, Ebola that breaks out in Sierra Leone can destroy London. So we quarantine Sierra Leone. We don't do the quarantine because we are heartless human beings. We try to find a cure for uh, 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 Ebola, but we quarantine it so that it doesn't infect the healthy body. The Middle East needs to be quarantined. I have argued the case that in the Middle East, you see, after the Second World War ended, within a matter of 24 months, George Kennan had had stated the policy, which became the containment policy. We don't have a George Kennan. He was, he was you know, a State Department official. We have the
4: exact opposite. We We're have encouraging opposite. immigration from these states. All
2: sorts of things. So we, we have this situation. We have not had a policy to deal with this. And the fundamental problem is that we embrace the theocrats. No question. Um,
3: are we overreacting to ISIS? No,
2: we're not overreacting. Okay. We're underreacting. We're reacting as confused. And, and, and because of that confusion, all sorts of you have these hysterical debates that, you know, mm-hmm. with Bill Maher going on and so on and so forth. Look, uh, the tipping point was not 9-11. The tipping point was uh, 1979 when Ayatollah Khomeini's people took You know, 50 American hostages for 444 days. That was an act of war. If it had been Russian diplomats, Tehran would have been reduced to rubble.
4: But just preceding that, we had the United States giving asylum to the Shah of Iran. And that's why they actually saw the United States perhaps as an enemy. But that's
2: the confusion. We gave asylum to the Shah, who was our ally for 50 years, and it's not the right thing to do. But the the, the guy who took power from Shah was in asylum in Paris. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> talk about the—but the point is, whatever it is, that's the, that's the game of chess, you see. You play the game of chess and the better player wins. But when the loser brings in other variables, the religion and so on and so forth, they're not playing anymore the game of chess. So in the world of nation states, there are all sorts of foreign policy going on. But when the other side start yelling and screaming that, you know, this is Islam, this is religion... Whereas this is, you know, United Nation is not talking about religion. It is talking about the Charter of the United Nations. It's talking about the Universal Declaration of hu- Human Rights. Mm-hmm. And when you su- sign up with the United you sign this document, then you step back and you stop talking about religion. And that's what they're doing. They've signed the United Nations hu- Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They're bound to protect the minorities. They signed the Charter. They're bound to protect the diplomatic rules and the d- convention. And Ayatollah Khomeini was in complete, you know, Mm -hmm. had upturned this rule, what should have been the response? There was no response. In fact, the response was a totally confused response. For 440 days, Americans were held hostages. That was a tipping point when these theocrats realized the West doesn't have the spine to defend their interests or to help modernization of that part of the world.
3: Well, it looks like we've got some uh, cleaning up to do here in the West ourselves. Thank you very much, Salim, for a very engaging conversation, as always. Hope you can join us again in the future to continue this topic. (laughs) But we've got to go for now, and we're gone for another week, and we hope that you can join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. Back here, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. To color and color to black and white. Under the bed clothes,
5: everything will be alright. I recently read that during World War II, Joseph Stalin had a research program to create super soldiers by having women impregnated by
3: gorillas. What a sick use of science. Hey, as long as the baby's healthy.
6: I wonder if Stalin considered any other animals. Hippos are the deadliest creature. A uh, half-human, half-hippo soldier would be
5: pretty badass.
3: Yes, but when they're hungry, hungry, you can stop them with marbles.
5: Yeah, the correct animal for interspecies super soldier is koala. You would wind up with an army so cute it couldn't be attacked. But half-man, half-owl could The be answer is cuddly soldiers with big, flat noses. Moving on.